Well, good morning, Oak Grove. <clears throat> so I'd like to invite you again, if you did not visit um, with us this week, to come to the prayer service on Monday. And if you don't fast that day, don't let that be the reason you don't come. And if you come late, don't let that be the reason you don't come. We're, we're doing it at 6.15, just because, like, I get it, it's a weeknight, if we do it later than that, practically you're not getting home till 8 or after that. We, we, we want you to come participate. We also want you to bring your kids. During that, we're not having any, any children's um, service or anything like that. What we're doing is we want them here. We want them to, to know what it feels like for the, the brothers and sisters to come together and pray. But what we do have, because... Um, Jordan has led worship at these things before, and I had the opportunity to sit with my daughter, and you know she spun around me like a like a spider monkey the whole time. Like kids are gonna kid, like they're gonna they're gonna be kids. Like it's okay. No, it's only bothering you, like as mom and dad. It's not bothering anybody else. But if it gets to where you're like, I'm about to pull my hair out. We have TVs that are running in the, the foyer and in that big room around to the side. Um, that's, that's on Monday night. But the same thing here. Like, we, we love your kids in the service, but we get practically, like, you want to worship too. That's why we have the, 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 the children's service. But we also want you to feel the liberty to keep them with you because a quiet service is a dead service. Where, where there's no babies in service, that's a dying church, and we are not a dying church. So if, if you want to keep your kiddos with you, do it. But if they get a little restless and you're like, oh, this is killing me because it's not bothering anybody else. I just want, it's not bothering anybody in it. It's not bothering me. I've preached in third world countries where kids are like up there walking around your ankles the whole time. It, it's great. But if it's bothering you, there's, uh, we stream the services out in the foyer if you need to have them get up and stretch their legs just a little bit. But that's, that's just a little uh, FYI about what, what's coming. And um, if I don't know if we're saying it out loud or not, that we do want you to have your kids with you. And we want to take that, that we get it. We, we know the feeling of like, am, am I a burden to anybody else? No, you're not. <laughs> So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. God, we love you. God, I pray that we would be a people who live with the posture that understands that we deserve to be in hell right now. We deserve the full brunt of your wrath. But you are gracious, you are kind, and you've redeemed us. Lord, we pray that we would live as a light in our community. And God, we pray right now as we look at the text that you would open our eyes to the, what's true. God, and you would compel us to act. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Galatians 3, um, chapter 3, verse 1, if you want to turn there or open in your device or however you do it. But we are continuing a series that we call Captivated. We've been calling our study in, in Galatians Captivated because we're a people seeking to be captivated by the love of Jesus who are actively seeking and serving to build his kingdom here on earth, right? So we want to we be a captivated people. 
the Galatian problem was that there was a group who was teaching, uh, remember we've said this a lot lately, a Jesus plus gospel. That, that's who Jesus is, that, that's who Paul's calling out. They're, they're, they're teaching a Jesus plus works of the law and plus traditions to, let's, let's use our, our air quotes, to really be saved. Like that, that's how you know you're really saved is you've, you got Jesus, but you also got the law and, and, and you're doing the works. But that's not how we find that a person's saved. Paul, he's trying, to, he's trying to change their mindset with a clear description of how a person is justified. And we, we know how this is. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Can we say that together, church? We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Amen. So anytime I come to a text, I, I haven't been telling you this, and I, I thought about it this week. I was like, I ought to tell them. That the main point that I always have on the screen, I ask two questions. What is true and what do we do with it? So this week, what we see is clear in the text. What is true is we receive the Holy Spirit not by works, but by faith. So what do we do with that? Well, from the text, we see we are to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting in his power to save us, his power to perfect us, and his power to do miracles among us, reaching our neighbors and the nations. So that's what is true and what we are to do. So let's read our text together, verses 1 through 9, and we're going to see those things rise up from it, okay? O oh, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You should read a lot of sarcasm, by the way. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. In Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we're going to break that down in just a couple of parts. The first thing that we're going to see here is in verses 1 through 5. We're going to see that the works of the Spirit and faith versus the works of law. So, Paul, he just really tears into him again, right? We thought, he, we thought everything was hunky-dory after the end of the last chapter, but like he just rips back into him. He, he says, you are foolish. Just in case we miss that, that's not a term of endearment. Then he goes on to say, you've been bewitched. And this is, this is kind of that idea of like being hypnotized. Have you ever seen anybody get hypnotized? It, they, they do ridiculous things that they would never do otherwise. The, 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 the hypnotist begins to like puppeteer them, right? 
They tell them to pick their nose in public, and they do, they do all kind of weird stuff with them. And that's, that's kind of what Paul's saying. Like, the claims that you're making about needing to add works to, to the work of Jesus for salvation, it's ridiculous. You look ridiculous. You look foolish. And the claim itself doesn't even make sense. Paul tells them, it was before your eyes. Look at the text. It says, before your eyes, he was publicly portrayed as crucified. And what Paul's talking about here is this original gospel message. Remember, we've talked about the history a lot. Paul was the original person who brought the gospel to the area of Galatia. It's a region north of Jerusalem by quite a long distance. So, if you're reading this and you think they physically saw Jesus get, get executed, that's not what he's saying. Publicly portrayed is one Greek word that means to vividly describe. So it would be wrong to think that they saw it in person or that Paul did some kind of like weird acting out the gospel or acting out the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Like, no, he, he had made it so clear by the way that he described the work of Jesus that he stood in front of them and it was before their eyes that he stood there and publicly portrayed with words the message of Jesus Christ. So Paul knows that these people know the true gospel because he was the one that shared it with them. And man, Paul should have been a lawyer because like we've all watched those court dramas, right? Where they come and they ask all the questions in a row or maybe you've watched real, um, like a real Court, yeah, that's, yeah, trial, a real trial, words. I'm in the business of words. That one's escaping me. Um, but you, you've seen it where they ask these rhetorical questions over and over and over to make, they build a case because if you answer yes or no, however they phrase these questions, like you condemn yourself. And that's, that's what Paul does right here. So verse two. So Paul, Paul he's, he's doing this, this, this rhetorical question system to show how ridiculous they're being by believing this Jesus plus nonsense to be a real Christian. So verse two, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the, the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Have you ever called one of those helplines? Like my internet went out one time and so I call the I call the helpline AT and T helpline, and I sit there for like forty five minutes. Then somebody answers, and you sit there for like another forty five minutes. Then you finally get somebody. Now collectively, you've spent some time on this, and you're frustrated and you're mad. And what's the first question they ask you? Check. To, is it plugged in? Well, it's frustrating, right? That's that's like the most frustrating question. But they can't do any other diagnostic work until they see if you got power or not. So Paul, what he's doing is he's asking the diagnostic questions to see if they even got power or not. Like when you go to a, a doctor's office, he asks you questions to know which way he should go. Paul says, this one thing I need to know from you. Nothing else. The, by the way you answer this first thing gives me all I need to know about it because it will be the beginning and the end of our conversation. So here's, here's the question that's the theological equivalent of whether or not your modem's plugged in. 
Verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the work of the law or by hearing, uh, by hearing with faith? Look at the phrase, did you receive? Notice what kind of word is receive? It's a passive action. He, did, did you receive by works of the law or by hearing with faith? These things are in stark contrast. Did you receive because the Spirit was given to you? Or did you work really, really hard to get the Holy Spirit to live inside of you? These two things don't go together. The phrase the, receiving the Spirit, it's also synonymous with salvation. So there's no receiving the Spirit without salvation. I want, that may be unclear, so let's look at another place, Romans 8 9. You'll see it on the screen. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So this, this question about whether or not you have the Spirit inside of you is a question about whether or not you are actually saved. So the, the work of Jesus in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, it was lacking in nothing for our salvation. Romans 10, 17 tells us how, we're being, how we get saved. We've been told over and over and over how we're justified in this book, but let's, let's see it said a different way. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The Galatian church, these believers, they had heard publicly that Paul, he publicly portrayed the, the message of Jesus Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. And these people were justified by faith. They, they knew that they were saved by faith alone and not from works. They, they knew that we only get the Holy Spirit if we receive him. We can't earn him. Remember how we've been defining grace? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is a free gift. It's the grace of God that we receive the Holy Spirit. It's the grace of God that we're justified. It's the grace of God that we're saved. And if it was by works, it wouldn't be grace. It's either for free or it's not at all. We're saved because we've received the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we receive it, we believe through the works of Jesus Christ alone. And if salvation comes by works of the law, I know this sounds really repetitive, but a whole lot of the New Testament is given to this singular issue because we get all wonky real fast. We could claim somehow we earn salvation if it was any part of us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is very clear. For by grace you've been saved through faith. We've said that a lot at this point this morning. By faith we've been, we've been saved. And this is not your own doing, not because you kept the law really well. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one might boast. No one can say, I earned Jesus and you did not. There is no work that completed, there's nothing we do to complete the work. Jesus has completed the work. Jesus has done the work. Jesus has sought us, he has bought us, and he has saved us. It's not us. There's no work that we have to do to finish this thing. Paul goes on in verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? 
Are you now being perfected by the flesh? What the Holy Spirit has begun in us, what, what has the Holy Spirit begun in us? I'm sorry. We, we talked about it last week. Remember Ezekiel 36, 26? By the way, y'all are gonna get tired of that verse. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it clearly portrays the gospel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, 26 is the promise that he will put a new heart within us, that he'll take this dead, this dead heart and replace it with this new beating heart um, Ephesians explains us as spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin until the Holy Spirit comes in and makes us alive to Jesus. Before the Holy Spirit indwells us and before we are given this new heart, before we put faith in him, we can do nothing for him. It has to be the Holy Spirit indwelling us, enabling us to serve Jesus. Ezekiel 36, 26 also tells us why. He says, I will put my spirit within you. He's talking about the spirit of God. I will put my spirit within you for what purpose? So that you can walk in my statutes and in my ways. So the, the walking in the statutes and ways did not come before the spirit coming and living inside of you. We, we do that as an overflow of the Holy Spirit and God living inside of us. God, through the, the power of his holy trinity, he has perfectly saved us. Let's, let's take a quick overview. We, trinity is a word that we use a lot in, the, in Christian circles. Let's take a quick overview and see how the trinity is working together in our salvation, especially based on what we've already seen through the text in Galatians. So we know that the Father has, is the one who made the plan to save us. He created, he created the world in such a way that he would redeem a people that would love and follow him and that he would, he would spend an eternity with them. He created the world in this way. And then we see God the Son came to earth and paid the debt to redeem us by his blood. And we're made perfect by his blood. Those who are in Christ are washed in the blood of Jesus and we come out without spot or blemish. Ephesians 4 talks about how clean we are. He, it talks about how the, how the sun is going to present us as radiant without spot or blemish. That's the work of the sun through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then you wouldn't believe how much is in the scriptures about the Holy Spirit and his work. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who, who draws us the Holy Spirit's the one who calls us to Jesus. The, uh, you'll hear me talk about old dead guys. My favorite old dead guys are from the Reformation. And they, they, they talk about the Spirit as wooing. He, he calls us to Jesus. He's the one that Jesus tells us in John 16, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then whenever they, they see their sin and they want to believe, he's the one who comes inside of us and gives us this new heart so that we can now walk with him. He's, he's the one who gives us the ability to live for God. He gives you the ability to keep the law. Before the Holy Spirit lives inside you, it doesn't matter how many laws you keep. It doesn't. You can keep all the laws and go to hell. Because it's a matter of being transformed and made new through the power of Jesus. So the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to keep the law. Not that that somehow makes us righteous, but it's just, that's the natural overflow of being a believer. 
is that we would start walking in obedience because the Holy Spirit is empowering us and indwelling us, and we're told for what purpose that we would start walking in the ways and statutes of God. He also, he seals us and perfects us. I love this, Ephesians 1, 13, talks about how he seals us. You'll see it on the screen. In him, you also, when you heard the words of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we were sealed at the moment we believed. We had the seal of the Holy Spirit. No one can remove a seal, a seal except for a king. When a king would put a seal, his seal of approval on something, his seal, uh, his seal of a letter or a decree, it would be sent somewhere. Only authorized people could remove that seal. God is the only one authorized, and he says he will not. That seal of the Holy Spirit is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our guarantee of perfection is not what we can accomplish through the law, but what the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ have already accomplished in us. We make this Christian life such a weighty thing about all the things we have to do and all the things we have to accomplish. That's a yoke you weren't meant to carry. Your shoulders aren't broad enough. The only shoulders that fit are the shoulders of the Trinity. Exhale, breathe out. You've been guaranteed by the Spirit that you'll be delivered, not based on your work, but based on His. The work is done for us. It's like, you know when a couple has a baby? The, I, I did this. Uh, the dad always says, we had a baby. No, mama had the baby. Dad just passively sat in the room and tried not to throw up and pass out, right? <laughs> the, mama had that baby. Yeah, we are a part of the salvation thing and we are a part of this work thing, but it's more passive the Holy Spirit, God's the one doing it. We're along for the ride. There's a work done in us, but it's the work of the Spirit. So let's look at verses 3 through 5. We're going to see the work of the Spirit in producing works in us. So again, let's look at our text. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul's saying the salvation thing can only be done from, from God, right? Now you need to, to come in and finish the job somehow? Yeah, right. You think you're going to, to perfect what God's already done miraculously inside of you by you doing works of your hands? There's no way. You're, you're going to perfect what God has done by some sort of ritual, by a ritual cutting of the flesh, that's how you're going to, that's, that's how you're going to complete what God's done? That's not going to happen. Paul says, saying all these things makes you look like a fool. As a preacher, it's frustrating. Someone comes to faith and is zealot for some particular idea. They, they come and they tell this new person that, so now to really be saved, you got to read the Bible cover to cover. To really be saved, you got to get baptized or whatever. Look, reading the Bible is an overflow of what, what God's done in us because we got the Holy Spirit and 
The Bible is the love letter that God has written to us to reveal himself to us and also to show us how he wants us to live. But that's not the necessity to come to Christ. That's just an, that's just an overflow that we would follow in that way. Our baptism. Baptism is great, by the way. Baptism, but baptism is just an outward expression of what God's done in you. It's an overflow. Christ has commanded it. By the way, if you're in here and you're a believer and you've not yet been baptized, I want you to understand, baptism is a command by Christ that you would do it after you believe. But it does not save us. Once we're in Christ, we're going to walk in obedience, and he's commanded it, so that's what we're going to do. It's, it's the, saying things like this, it's as ignorant as saying, I'm, I'm married because I wear a wedding ring. Am I married because I wear a wedding ring? No. Anybody can buy a wedding ring. Uh, I'm married because my wife and I have covenanted before God in marriage. Not because I wear a ring. You're not saved because you read the Bible. You're not saved because you're baptized. You're not saved because you come to church. You're saved because you made a covenant with God Almighty that you would follow Him and walk with Him. All these things we do in this Christian life are not to make us saved or to perfect what God's already done. Instead, we do these things because we are saved. And it is the natural outworking and the natural fruit of, of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And you're like, man, I feel like we've talked about this a lot. We have. And Paul in the New Testament and John and Peter, they talk about it a lot because we want to grab a hold of things that we can just put a stake in the ground and go, I know that I know that I know. So let's look at verse four. He says, did you suffer so many things in vain? And if indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the spirit to you works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You got to understand, these guys in this church were legit. Like, I know we've been hammering the Galatian people a lot, but they were legit. Think about this. They came to Christ in a Roman environment. They were socially and physically and politically persecuted and ostracized. That's, that's, what, that's what these people had experienced. And Paul's saying, if you're adding this Jesus plus nonsense to it, all that suffering that you faced, it was for nothing. It was vain. Look at, look at verse 5. He says, does the one who supplies the Spirit, oh, and notice again, it supplies an action that we go and get, or is it passive? It's like being received. There's nothing we conjure up. Conjure up. He, the Spirit is supplied. He's given. He's received. Has this miraculous thing God's done among you been because of works of the law or because of faith? When God healed people, was it because you circumcised somebody and kept the law or because God chose to move? When, when, when your family got saved, was it because you kept the law? or because God moved in their hearts? How does God do miracles? Not by power of our hands, right? And that, that it, it's, it's by the power of the Spirit. Like today, how does God do miracles among us? Just like he did in the Old Testament. 
Think about this. Did Moses part the Red Sea? No. God parted the Red Sea and used Moses to do it. Uh, how, how do we, do, do we save people? No. But God uses us to do it. Do, can we heal people when we pray for them? No. But God chooses to work through our prayers. We've got no power apart from what he supplies in us. The people in Galatia, they trusted in the law and in traditions. Charles Spurgeon tells a story about two men who fell into a rushing river. So just imagine this. They're, they're about to fall over a cliff, and you can see their heads bobbing up and down, up and down, up and down. And this one guy, he takes and he throws a rope. And one of the men grabs onto the rope. Now the other guy, he sees a, he sees a log floating down the river. The log feels more solid, feels more tangible. That rope's flimsy. So he decides to grab a hold of the log. Well, the one man's pulled to safety, and the other man, the log, is the vehicle that leads to his death. In this story, the rope is trusting by faith, even though it doesn't look as strong. Because that, that rope is tethered to the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. The law, let's be real, the law feels better a lot of times because it's something tangible. These symbols, they're, ta they're something we can really hold on to. But these tangible things, in many cases, are the things that lead to our destruction because we trust in them because they feel more solid than trusting in faith in the work that Jesus has accomplished. And I get why people push faith and tradition and symbols on, on, on their family and on their friends. I get it. It's to comfort us. It's, it's selfish. When, when you've got somebody who lives totally lost, the Bible tells us more than likely they're lost, right? If you live lost, you're probably lost. It doesn't matter what symbol you've done. But it, these traditions... And these symbols, those are things we, as the people who love them, can hold on to, right? I can hold on to the fact that, that I saw them raise their hand. I can hold on to the fact that I saw them get baptized. I can hold on to the fact that I heard them pray to receive Jesus. But it's selfish. It's a selfish act on our part, holding on to these things when we see them living in sin. Because what we're doing is we're comforting them all the way to the grave. We're coddling them all the way to hell because it's uncomfortable for us to preach repentance and the gospel. Now, I will say, can somebody live like that and not be saved? Yeah, we, we, we see people like fall in pits of sin. They come out and all this kind of stuff. But we are called to call out to them, to be a voice crying in the wilderness, right? So we can't hold on to these other things because we know what's on the line. The only way that a person can be saved is by putting their faith and trust in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the evidence that we know that that's taken place in their heart is that they walk in obedience. 
The evidence of your salvation is your obedience. And here, here I want to be very, very clear. I do not mean perfection. I do not mean perfection. Because people hear obedience and they assume perfection. I don't mean perfection. I mean obedience. Paul, at the end of this book, in chapter 6, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. But he does not say how much fruit each of us will produce. He does not tell us about the quantity or the quality of that fruit, but he does tell us what the fruit will have in it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. How much of all these things? I don't know. But the fruit will be evident because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God gives each person a different measure of, of strength and faith. And I'm not going to sit here and hit people with stones because they don't have mine. And I don't want you to start throwing stones at me when I don't have yours. But we're not going to stay silent. We're going to call people to repentance. All right, so let's, let's move right along. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. And we're going to see the work of the Spirit in faith versus the work of tradition. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham the man of faith. So you got to understand, one of the major point of prides for the Jews was that God went to their forefather, Abraham, and said, you're mine, and all your descendants will be my special people. They, they were God's chosen race of people. And the sign that, that God was, had covenanted with them that they were going to be God's special people was circumcision. So there's a reason these guys are all wrapped up in circumcision. There's a reason why it's important to them, because it's so deeply connected to their traditions. Paul, to show them how ridiculous they're being, because they're saying this circumcision is the final act to prove salvation. Paul's showing how ridiculous they're being. He's quoting that, that thing about Abraham from Genesis 15, 6. It's going to come on the screen. He says, and he believed the Lord, that's talking about Abraham, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I get the question asked all the time. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Were they saved by the law? Were they saved by circumcision? Well, it couldn't be by the law because from Adam all the way to Exodus, there was no law. Hebrews 11 helps us in this because it goes through all these Old Testament characters one by one, just laying it out there. I wanted to read it, but it, it got to the point where like, we would have just been reading the text all morning. And all of them say, by faith. How was Abraham saved? By faith. He was saved by faith alone. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Same thing for those who follow the law. They could have kept every law and they could have kept all the sacrifices, but if they didn't have faith in God, they were still going to go to hell. The law didn't save them. Circumcision didn't save them. It was by faith alone. God tells them over and over and over, I don't care about your sacrifices. 
And God was the one that gave it. What he wanted was obedience and faith. That's what he wanted from those people then, and that's what he wants from this people now, is obedience and faith. John 8, talking about Abraham, John 8, 56, shows that they were looking forward to Jesus. Jesus is teaching this, and he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So how, what did they know about Jesus? What did they know about this coming Messiah? What did they know by faith? I don't know. <laughs> Jesus did, and it was good enough for him. But we know it was by faith because that's what we're told. We don't know how much, we don't know what of, but we know they're looking forward in faith and that's what justified them. Just like we know we're looking backwards by faith at the work that Jesus had accomplished. So God is consistent. His work is the same. So Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Let's, let's, let's think, let's put ourselves in, in, in the, the, the seat of these Jewish Christians. Paul's about to show them real quick how ridiculous they're being. So they would have memorized the first five books of the Bible at least, at least all the males. The first five books of the Bible, they would have had it memorized. So Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness in Genesis 15. It's God, he's pointing back to Genesis 12 when God called Abraham to come to come follow me into this land, this unknown land. I'm not great at math, so let's use our fingers. So chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, well, that's not when we got circumcision, 16, 17. Chapter 17 is when the covenant of circumcision is established. A long, long period of time had passed between him being justified, then having this symbolic act placed on him that he was justified. So Paul, what he's doing is he's showing them how ridiculous they're being. And the name Abraham, I love this. It means a father of multitudes. So verse seven says, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Though we're not ethnic Jews, because we have faith, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. Verse 8. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Scripture says that the Gentiles would be justified by faith. And it, it, it happens over and over and over in the Old Testament. You see people come in. You see, you see Rahab. You see Ruth. You see, you see these people coming into the fold. And by the way, they're in the line of Jesus. So all these Gentiles are now in the lineage of Jesus. All these things pointing to the fact that God's, it was God's desire all times that he would reach the nations. But let's look at this call, this, the, what, what, what Paul's talking about in verse in Genesis 12, 3. He's talking about this original call of when he preached the gospel to Abraham. You'll see it on the screen. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make, for, I will make you a great nation and I will bless those who bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will, oh, I'm sorry, I got all twisted. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
So there's three major points of this promise, and I, I want you to catch all three of them because these are three major things that will help you unlock reading the Old Testament, okay? Three, three, three major things here. Land, seed, and blessing. So the land, there's a promise that they're going to receive this land, the land of Canaan. And, but it, there's, a, there's a deeper promise in that because eventually they're all going to be buried in that dirt. So that's, not, that's kind of short-sighted. There, there's this future promised land, this eternal land, that, that this new Jerusalem that we're all going to get to be a part of. So land, that's the first part of the promise. And you see it unfold as the story of Abraham unfolds. The second one is seed. That through him, there's going to be, he's going to be a great nation, but also that he's going to bless all the nations. He's going to bless all the families of the earth. And there's one that's coming that's going to make that possible, and that one is Jesus Christ. So there's a double-fold promise in the seed that there's going to be one that, that he's going to actually physically be a great nation because if it was just the great nation part, Kind of, kind of a letdown because, yeah, Israel for a little bit was their own nation, but they lost the land, the monarchy fell, and for most of its history, they've been in bondage. So, But there's this greater promise of this eternal kingdom that he would be a great nation. And then the final one is blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And then you see in that section is where the, the, the story of, of this one who's coming to bless all the families of the earth. That's where this one is This one is shown. So I just want you to see those things because as you read the Old Testament, you can read with, with those three things from um, Genesis all the way through Exodus and you'll see them come, over, come true again and again and again. But so God's original call to Abraham, it was clear that God's intention is that he would use the seed of Abraham to bless all the nations. And we know this is accomplished through the God-man Jesus Christ. And Paul, he's pointing to Abraham and he was drawing their attention to their tradition. Your tradition says the Gentiles are coming in. Your tradition says that you're not saved by this act of tradition. You're saved by faith. Abraham and his descendants, they were not justified by tradition or by works of the law. And those of us who are in Christ we are not saved because we're keeping some sort of tradition or because we're doing any works. The Galatian problem was that the people had been captivated by these laws and by these traditions. In, in our context, listen to me here, in our context, we see churches getting this cycle of being captivated by their traditions and they, they end up getting hamstrung they end up getting hamstrung, and they stop being used as tools to build the kingdom of God here on earth. God is doing something special here. I've been told last year at this time, we were running on a Sunday morning, about 130 or 150 people. We're in what church specialists would call a church revitalization. That's what we're experiencing now. And generally, you don't see this happening in traditional churches. When I say traditional, I mean this church has been established since 1874. God is doing something special here, special at Oak Grove. On average, and I took the low number, guys, on average, 
3,500 churches close their doors a year. And that's a stat pre-COVID-19 because we don't even know, really, we don't have real numbers on what that looks like yet. Churches are closing their doors, but God, through his spirit, is using you to reach your neighbors. We saw it through the baptisms. We see it through people joining. He's using you to reach your neighbors. These these churches, they end up closing their, their doors and they're dying because they're hamstrung by traditions and backbiting. And they die because they misunderstand or they're unwilling to say yes when the Spirit makes the way forward evident for them. God's blessing us. Like, if you're a guest here this morning, this part really isn't for you, but just bear with us for a second. We're just talking as as a church family. God's blessing us. We must desperately call out to the Lord and wait on the Spirit for Him to make His way forward evident for us. And when He does, we must say yes. People like us, when the Spirit says move, we say yes. We just ask in what direction. People want the whole picture because they want to feel safe. They want something tangible. They want something they feel like will succeed. God wants us to trust. God doesn't give us all that, by the way. He doesn't give us all the steps. God didn't tell Abraham exactly where to go. God just gave him a general direction. How are we going to respond when we receive his direction? As a church and as individuals. We know that God's leading us in a new step in ministry mainly because we've outgrown our current ministry model. Sunday school, we, we should have brought some more chairs in. Sorry, dude, they were way over there. We, we've had to bring, like, we, we know we've outgrown this ministry model. I don't have the answer, but I'm praying for what it looks like. I'm, I'm, I'm praying that we would pray together and seek the Lord's face. I don't know where we're going to do it or how we're going to do it, but we're going to be about this mission, the Great Commission. And the things that we do, they're going to be in the direction of making disciples of our neighborhoods and the nations. Amen? Is that what you want to be about? So here's what I'm praying for, and I'll end. The Holy Spirit to fall on us and, and break out revival among us, Jesus, think about this. Jesus changed the world with 11 guys who didn't have cars or cell phones. Yeah, we're not those guys, but we got some means and he could do, like, look around. God can use us globally. He used 11 poor dudes. I'm praying that we would find an innovative answer to growth that does not financially leverage us in such a way that we cannot increase our giving capacity to missions and that we wouldn't be leveraged in such a way that we can't go on mission because God hasn't called someone else to go. He's called us to go. I'm praying that God would raise up among us from Oak Grove 
pastors and missionaries. I'm praying to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up harvesters from this place. Those are all very big prayers. And I'm praying that God would save the lost. So on Monday, those are the things we're praying for. But in your, in your own time, please, please don't spend your time coming up with the answers for God. Spend your time calling out to God that he would make it clear to us as a church that we would be able to walk in unity. So I'm gonna ask you guys to stand as we close. I'm gonna ask you to stand and start praying about these things. Pray how God is going to use you Pray how God is going to, to reveal to us what next looks like. But more than any of that, pray that God would use us to fulfill the Great Commission and that we would not be distracted by any of these other things, by any of these platforms that he's, that he's gonna do it through us with. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I'm gonna be standing up here in the front and I would love to pray with you. If the Lord's pressed something on your heart, I'd love to pray with you too. So if you will, bow your heads and we're going to pray and the band's going to lead us in worship.